and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 90 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Walt Disney Imagineer Raleigh Crump. Raleigh is a true Disney legend. He worked as an animator at the Walt Disney Studios going back to Walt's era and of course then started up as one of Walt's not original Imagineers but started up just a couple years later at Wed Enterprises working on attractions for the 1964 World's Fair Disneyland and Walt Disney World. He is such a fun personality, an incredible person to talk to, and has so many incredible memories of what it was like to work with Walt Disney and all the other Imagineers you know and love at WED Enterprises and at Walt Disney Animation. Of course, at the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So, grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer Podcast. So my guest on the podcast today needs really no introduction. If you know anything about Disney and Walt Disney Imagineering, you certainly have heard the name Raleigh Crump or at the very least have experienced many of his attractions and creations and films over the years. But I am so excited to get the chance to chat with Raleigh directly. So I'd like to go ahead and welcome to the show. Raleigh Crump. How are you, Raleigh? Hi there. I'm happy to be here and talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what we love as well. And I'm oh, I'm I'm really excited to to chat more about your time at Disney before we talk about specifically your projects at Disney. I feel like we have to step back in time a little bit because I know you grew up in the Los Angeles area in the 1930s and that was a time where there were a lot of Disney shorts. Ultimately, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves came to theaters as well. When you were growing up, did you get the chance to see a lot of those Disney productions as a kid? Yes, I did. I remember watching uh, The Three Little Pigs uh, when I was three years old, so that's a, <laughs> that was kind of an exciting time frame because I never knew who Walt was or, or anything about Disney. And my dad took me to a little theater because he knew the uh, the fellow that went around the projection. And he says, "There's a Disney film on today called The Three Little Pigs." He said, "Your son might like to see that." So I was invited to sit actually up with the where they were projecting the film. <clears throat> so I watched. The Three Little Pigs, when I was three, from a little balcony up there where they had the projector. Amazing. That's that's amazing to hear. And it's incredible how years later, a lot of aspiring Disney animators and Imagineers are also going to see Disney films as a point of inspiration. Um, when did you first become interested in art and animation as a, as a career? Oh, 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 that's a good one. 
uh, I was always interested in art from the time I was born because I used to just draw constantly. And uh, I didn't know who Walt was or what the Disney organization was until I saw the three little pigs. And I told, and I told my dad, I said, I want to work for that company. And I said that as soon as I saw him because I was thrilled and blown away by the animation because I'd never seen an animated cartoon prior to that. So it started my whole life headed towards uh, being a, a Disney uh, gentleman. <laughs> yeah, I, I find a lot of animators or Imagineers have that lifelong passion. So it's great that you had the same passion as well. So when did you ultimately, I know you, you started up at the Walt Disney Studios in 1952. How did the job at Disney come about? <laughs> it's in the book. <laughs> no, I have to kid with you. Um, no, no, I have to kid with you. Um, I was at a Christmas party at my mother's house, and um, there was a group of her, of her, her lady friends. And as they were there, uh, my mom said that that I always wanted to work for Disney. <clears throat> and one little lady spoke up. She said, "Well, I used to work for Disney." She said, "I used to I used to be an animation at the studio." And she says, if he really wants to apply for a job, I'll give you a name and number to call, which she did. <clears throat> and the following Monday, I did all of that. I dialed the gentleman, got him on the phone, and told him that I would like to get a job at Disney Studios. And then that kicked it off. And they invited me to come down with my portfolio, which I did. And, of course, my portfolio was nothing more than things I did when I was in, when I was in, in, excuse me, in high school. So needless to say, they were pretty simple little guys. And I was told at a later date, that it was the worst portfolio by anyone that was ever hired to work in animation at the <laughs> studio. That, and you're right, I did. Anyway. <laughs> and you're right, it is in the book. Uh, I, I remember um, reading that story from, uh, from your book. Uh, so I know you went on to work on a number of famous films and you talk a little bit in the book about working on Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp, 101 Dalmatians and Sleeping Beauty. Which of those films was your favorite to work on? First thing they uh, had me do was they were doing a little film. Uh, I forget the name of the film, but it was going to have a whole field of flowers and they wanted me to animate all the flowers in the field. So I spent quite a bit of time making flowers that, that turned around in the, in the field. And uh, luckily that didn't ever took place. I was called up to his office uh, when the film was being made. Uh, and uh, the director was there and, the, and Walt introduced me to the director and he, and he said, oh, this gentleman, uh, Rolly Crump, will uh, design the, uh, the little garden for you. Mary, Mary, how does your garden grow? And I, that's the first time I heard about it. I thought, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and so, of course, I said, yes, I would. You know. And so the director and I shook hands. And the next thing I knew, I was in the mall shop building Mary's garden. And uh, that was interesting because when he asked me to design it, the only way I designed it was to do it physically, build the flowers. <clears throat> and I wasn't supposed to because I didn't belong to that union. So they kind of had, had me hidden in a corner building this little garden. And it was really, it was, it was exciting, damn exciting. And luckily, a lot of the other model builders that were in there were there to help me. So it was, it was wonderful. It was an exciting time because you never knew what Walt was going to ask you to do. So, but you did everything he asked with no problem. Then eventually I got into doing some of the other, then, then, then eventually I got into uh, Peter Pan. In fact, I loved every one of them that I worked on. There was no one that was more special than the other because they were all special because each one had a different challenge. And uh, I enjoyed the, the challenges and I enjoyed the learning process. It was great. And I understand. Everything, Go ahead. No, everything we done or did for Disney, I was thrilled with and I loved every bit of it. Yeah, I, I can only imagine that would be the case. And I understand that in one of those films, 101 Dalmatians, you actually had to uh, animate all of the spots 
on the Dalmatians, how challenging was it to accomplish that? It was really challenging because I did the whole sequence of the puppies watching television. I did all the spots on every one of those those critters, <laughs> those little guys. And it, my animator gave that to me because you see what happens, the, the character gets designed, but then you put the spots on later. And so I was handed all these all these layouts and drawings that were the entire scene of the puppies watching television. And then my animator told me, okay, now put the spots on them. And let me tell you, putting spots on dogs that are moving around is not easy. <laughs> and uh, to make sure that your spots don't flow all over the place. They've got to look like they're attached to the dog. And that was quite a challenge. First of all, was to learn the patterns that I put on each dog so that when I went from scene to scene, I'd use the same pattern on the same dog. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess around and, and move the patterns all over the place. <clears throat> and one of the cutest ideas was that I came up with was there was one puppy called Lucky. And so I did a horse, uh, the spots on his back were in the shape of a horseshoe. So I thought that was kind of fun. And it was easy. It was so easy for me to follow where uh, Lucky was. Yeah, I can tell you looking back at it, it's perfectly done. It's, you would not even think about the challenge of doing all of that unless you were in animation. And it's, uh, the work is certainly appreciated, <laughs> all that time and effort that went into it. I definitely want to talk a bit about Walt because I know you got the chance to work with him in uh, over the span of a number of years do you recall the first time that you met walt disney oh yeah <laughs> this is kind of cute um yeah i met him in the hallway and they they introduced me to him and said walt this is Rolly crump or at that time i was rolling Roland Crump, and so, so I shook his hand, he shook mine, and I said, sir, it's going to be a pleasure to work for you, and, and I called him Mr. Disney, and he, and he looked at me, and when he shook my hand, he says, the name is Walt, and don't you forget it, <laughs> and he was good about that. Everybody had to call, call him Walt, no matter who you were. You could be the janitor, but you still had to call him Walt. But I did used to use other terms like sir and things like that when I talked with him. Yeah, I know he definitely went on a first name basis and it's a tradition at Disney that continues today. Everybody goes by their first name. How do you describe what it was like to work for Walt? I mean, you can't believe that, you know, when we, we, the room would be waiting for him to come in and have a workshop <clears throat> and just sitting there waiting for Walt to walk through the door was about one of the most exciting things I can remember. And finally, when he walked in and he came in and then he turned out to be just a regular guy. I mean, he was no, you know, a wonderful person walking in. No, he was just Walt coming in. He was like a little farm boy coming in and he treated you the same way. He was just a, it was an absolute love to work for. I loved every damn minute of it. I did seem to lose his temper a couple of times, but that was pretty well received and not ignored, you know. So <clears throat> anyway, no, no, it was a delight. And I learned every goddamn thing I know right now from Walt. Walt taught me everything as far as animation goes or as, or as actually being alive. I mean, his, his whole agenda on life was... Just beautiful, and he's a beautiful person. Yeah, I, I've heard similar stories from other Imagineers I've interviewed and other animators I've interviewed. Waltz definitely was loved by everybody who, who worked for him or worked with him. And I know one of the things that he had a knack for was remembering individual talents and unique projects that people were working on at his studio. And I know in your case, he uh, ended up seeing some propellers you had designed or remembering at least some propellers that you had designed at the studio when um, starting up at WED Enterprises 
Uh, I guess for those who might not have read your book yet, can you share the story of how you ended up at uh, WED Enterprises or now Walt Disney Imagineering? Uh, well, how I ended up at WED was I was having a, uh, a little show of my artwork in the library at the studio. And it just happened that that was about the time when I first met Walt. And um, the interesting thing about it was that Walt always had Ward Kimball and a bunch of the guys have work sessions and say, we need more people to come to work for us at WED. And he says, I like to pull everybody, you know, from the animation department to work at WED. And of course, the rumor was that if you left animation and you went to WED, you were never seen again. So that was kind of cool. So, you know, it was almost like you were killed and buried. So anyway, uh, anyway, what happened was, um, well, uh, somebody brought, I guess Ward brought up the name Rolly Crump. He said, maybe Roland Crump. And Walt said, uh, yeah, she said, I've heard about him. She said, but I, I checked into him and his animator says that he's too important in animation and he shouldn't, he shouldn't work for WED. And Ward told him, no, no, that's not true, Walt. He says he'd be much better off with WED than in animation. So Walt said, okay, well, let's, let's check on it. So he said, uh, I think I'll go and see his exhibit. So Walt went and saw my exhibit in the library. And that included all my propellers. That included my marijuana posters, my dope posters. So it included a little bit of everything that I did. And obviously, I was, <laughs> and what would happen was one of the gals from the library called me and said, <clears throat> Walt was in today and uh, saw your exhibit. And I said, did he? What did he do? She says, he laughed and smiled. I said, oh, my God. I said, did he go down the hallway where all the dope posters were? She said, yes, he did. And he laughed a lot in there. So I thought, well, he's laughing at my dope posters. So he's not such a bad guy after all. So anyway, I thought that was cool. <laughs> we, we had something in common when I found all about that. So anyway, he decided I hired the goddamn kid. So they, they hired me. Well, then when I went up and I met with him and shook his hand and, and everything, and uh, he just said, welcome on aboard. And I said, well, it's great to be working with you, sir. And then that was it. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know anything. Yeah, absolutely. I know you started at WED after Disneyland opened, and I, I don't think I saw this in the book, but were you able to, or, or were you at Disneyland either the opening day or the opening week or uh, around the time that it first opens? Oh, yes, I was. Oh, God, I took my whole family there. That was a gorgeous day. It was hotter than hell. And it was crowded. You couldn't get on any of the rides. But we went anyway. <laughs> and the interesting thing about it was I took my friends with me. I had a pickup truck. And, of course, the freeways weren't in then by then going down there. So I had two other couples that went with me, and I put them in the back of my truck on mattresses. And so we drove down and to, to Disneyland in a pickup truck, and that was kind of neat. Did you have a favorite ride at Disneyland? Uh, well, the only rides I, I found favorite were, was because I could go on them. And there weren't very many that I could go on because the clouds were so damn big, you know. So it was a, it was a time. time. <clears throat> but, of course, Peter Pan was one of my favorites to begin with because that was how I got started. So, I, in fact, I ended up working on the Peter Pan ride eventually, which was great. But uh, I, the, it was just the experience of be, walking on the grounds of, small, of the, that whole area. It was just incredible. Because all of a sudden you're walking with Walt's dream and you actually could feel exactly what it was all about. And it was not a, a surprise. It was just beautiful. It was, it was built, it was just built beautifully. Yeah, very, very exciting time for sure. And it's still around today and even growing as Walt originally wanted it to continue to grow. I know one of the projects you have a special place in your heart at least that's what you uh, said in the book was or is the enchanted tiki room which is also one of my favorites um can you talk about the how, what it was like to design 
and uh, work on the Enchanted Tiki Room? <laughs> well, again, you have to look back on all this. When Walt asked you to do something, although you've never done it before in your entire life, I was never scared. I just thought, whatever he asked me to do, I'll do. And I would just do whatever he asked. <laughs> and so I think that was the exciting part because you never knew what he was going to ask you to do. And the Tiki Room was the first one that he asked me to do. And it was just incredible. And everything fell in, in the light. It fell into my world when, when he asked me to do that because my world was a world of imagination. So as soon as he asked me to do that, then I immediately plugged in a, a man, imagination and I went to work on it. And uh, it was really kind of neat because the thing that he asked me to do in, in uh, for the Tiki Room was he said, you know, people, it's going to be a restaurant and people have to stand in line. So he says, you've got to do something that entertains the people when they're standing in line. So what, what between he and I, what came up with was for me to design all the tikis, and then all the tikis would talk, and that would be in the form of entertainment for the people waiting to go in there. See, it was going to be, it was designed to be a restaurant, and uh, that's what you do. If people are standing in line to go in the restaurant, so I brought the tikis to life. I knew I, I got the I went and did the homework on it. First of all, John Hanch helped me. I said, John, what do I do? And he said. Read up uh, everything you possibly can on the tikis of, of you know South Armenia, and so I did. I read books on it and everything, so I was pretty well read on tikis. So I had the choices to to work with all of those, and I eventually sculpted uh, one of them or two of them, I guess it was, and so that was what was fun. You know, well that's uh, the whole thing was that I was planning on just doing stuff, not just drawing, but actually physically doing it. So I sculpted about three or four of the tikis myself to begin with. And I've never sculpted before, <laughs> which was fun. Yeah, it's... But you did it anyway. Yeah, it's impressive work, I have to admit, that uh, you you were able to, to do that. Uh, I know two other Imagineers who... Uh, well, at least one other Imagineer who contributed to that was Harriet Burns, who I've interviewed her granddaughter before. Do you remember working with Harriet? Did you get the chance to work with her at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she's a sweetheart. Well, the whole model shop was a family, and uh, which was great. And working with her, because she came dressed every day like she was a secretary. She didn't come to work like in, she was going to work in the model shop. No, no, she came to work looking like a secretary. And that was really what was so beautiful about her. And she had the greatest sense of humor, absolute delightful sense of humor. Yeah, I've... Working I've, in the with heaven. Because, you know, you think dimensionally. And so then when you get to do things, you do it dimensionally. And that was an education process that I went through as well. I learned so damn much from that place. I mean, every every time I turned around, I was working with somebody I'd never worked before, and all I was doing was learning what they were doing. So it was great. Uh, definitely another person who I know you got to work closely with was Mary Blair, especially on It's a Small World. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what it was like to work with Mary, because I know you even knew of her and looked up to her before working at uh, at Disney. Well, working with Mary was like heaven. Um, she and I both were on the same plateau as far as color goes. We both liked to color right out of the tube, not add a little white or add a little black to change the color, the shade of the of the color. We did straight color and. Um, and of course, I had uh, heard about Mary for years. She was a, a walking idol, and uh, she was incredible. And so when I finally got to meet her, it was something very special. And I remember the first day she came to work in, into the model shop, and I was sitting up on a ladder uh, when she came in into the model shop, and she looked up at me and smiled. And I thought, oh, that was nice. And, and then later she told me, she said, you know, when I came in there that day and I saw you sitting up on the ladder, she said, 
he's kind of an interesting looking gentleman. I'd like to get to know him. <laughs> and of course we became very close because what I wanted to do was I want to make sure that we, I educated everyone to make sure that small world looked like Mary Blair did every bit of it. Cause Mary was not used to doing three dimensional. She was only used to doing things on a flat surface. So taking her flat surface drawings and making them three-dimensional was really quite a little chore, but I loved every minute of it. Yeah, and I know the other thing you worked on for the 1964 World's Fair was the Tower of the Four Winds, which I think a lot of people admire, but I heard that or read that you actually didn't like the Tower of the Four Winds. So uh, I, I'd love to hear your inspiration for its design and I guess what you didn't like so much about it. <laughs> yeah, I told Walt it was a piece of crap. And he says, Roland, it can't be a piece of crap. It cost me $400,000 or $200,000. <laughs> no, no, it was, um, well, what happened was I started doing the propellers. There was an animator that I was in the same wing I was. And he had this little propeller on top of his desk and uh, actually it was on top of a lamp. And the heat from the lamp was what made the propeller spin. And I asked him, I said, well, I said, how'd you do that? And he said, I can't tell you, it's a secret. So this went on for a long time. And I kept asking him, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? He said, I can't tell you, it's a secret. Then finally one day he says, I'll sell it to you. I said, okay. And I said, how much? He says, a penny. So I gave him a penny and he gave me the propeller. And then he, and then he told me how to, and then I asked him how to build that propeller. And the secret that was that when you meant the dent in the little clip that you had, you did it with a ballpoint pen, not a nail. I kept try, trying nails and it wouldn't work. You needed a smooth surface for it to write on because it was not even on a, on a push pen. And as long as it was kind of on a curved surface, then it would stay on the pushman and spin around perfect. So that was my learning of how to build a propeller. Well, then I started making them <clears throat> on my own, and I had my room filled with them. I had the whole room filled with them, and eventually was a, I had a uh, exhibit in the library with all of them. And, the, and then Walt saw my exhibit, and he saw the propellers. <clears throat> so I think that, that what he liked about, I think he always liked something that we were ticker toy people. He liked the idea that we knew how to do things domestically. And so therefore that, that really excited him. So I know he was damn excited about the propellers. Yeah, then he came to me when we were getting ready to do the World's Fair. He says, Ronnie, I want you to do a marquee for It's a Small World. So I want to have, have you do a tower uh, of the uh, four winds. He named it that he, right then. I said, okay. I, so I built a half-inch scale model on propellers that spun, and it was gorgeous. And uh, what happened was when it went to the engineers, in order to build that, it was going to be 120 feet high. <clears throat> in order to do that, you really had to build it that was, it was secure and that it wasn't going to blow over or fall apart on you. And so they, they really engineered the hell out of it, <clears throat> which meant that it, was, it became more clumsy looking because it had to be built thicker and fatter uh, in order to support everything. So that's when uh, we had that little discussion. But uh, what happened basically, <clears throat> Walt wanted to bring it back to Disneyland, and I did too at that time. <clears throat> but then the all the uh, directors at, at the studio came to me after lunch, and they said we don't want to bring the tower back to uh, to California and put it in Small World. I mean, put it put it in Small World. <clears throat> and I said, and then they told me why. First, it was going to cost too much money. The second thing is to, re to redesign it was going to cost them a lot. So anyway, they posed all these things to me. <clears throat> and then the last thing that they told me was, if it ever comes up, it'll hurt somebody. And one of them came off at the World's Fair during the wintertime. It was an eight-foot propeller that came off. And when it came off, it went right through a building. And I said, no, I don't want anything like that to ever happen. So I said, I don't want to bring it back. So what happened was we had the meeting with Walt about bringing it back, and and they and he they said all the guys said yeah we wanted to bring it back Walt just like you wanted to but but Rolly doesn't want to bring it back and so he says if Rolly doesn't want to bring it back then we won't bring it back 
So it was, I mean, kind of, we had a good connection. <laughs> and then I told him later why, and he, and he understood perfect, perfectly well what my concerns were, and probably the fact that I was more concerned about somebody being hit by my piece of design work than anything else. And I think he probably thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, safety first, for sure. The last, I know you worked on a lot at the World's Fair and Disneyland. The last one specific to Disneyland I'd love to talk about is the Haunted Mansion because <laughs> the Haunted Mansion is still to this day iconic and stands the test of time. I've, I've definitely shared this on the show before. Uh, and I know it was in development for years. So I'd love to hear a little more about your part in the Haunted Mansion and um, also what it was like to work with Yale Gracie on the project. Oh, <laughs> that was great. That was a charmer. Um, well, of course, everyone I worked with, I learned something from. So I was in the constant <laughs> classroom working there. Um, I don't know, Walt came in one day and he said, he just picked Yale Gracie was a layout designer and, and me, and he says, you two guys are going to work on the Haunted Mansion. And we both looked at each other, oh, like, okay, what are we going to do? And uh, this is what really what happened. He and I sat in a room together and kind of staring at each other and saying, but they didn't give us any direction what to do. They just said, work on the mansion. So we didn't know exactly what to do except do homework on what might be in a haunted mansion. So we started looking at all the films that were coming out that were scary films, and we started getting involved mentally with the scary stuff. So Yale and I both really wanted to do spooky scary, and um, Dick Irvine, who ran uh, wet at that time, wanted to be humorous. So he didn't like any of our ideas, and uh, which was really kind of spooky <laughs> when you stop and think about it. Anyway, what happened was um, I just started doing sketches on the side of these real weird looking characters. And uh, I did a whole bunch of them. We were gonna have a meeting with Walt and everybody was bringing in their ideas and putting them on the wall. <clears throat> so I put all my scary stuff up on the wall. And uh, when it finally, and, and they, they kind of put my sketches behind Walt where he was sitting so he wouldn't necessarily look at him, not realizing he sees everything no matter what. <clears throat> and uh, so we had the meeting and, they, and all the guys went through their designs of what they were, wanted to put in the mansion, but nothing was mentioned about mine or anything. And so Walt said, said to Dick Irvine, he says, is that it? He says, yep. He said, well, what's this stuff on the wall? behind me. And he said, well, that's some stuff that Raleigh did. And he said, well, what did Raleigh do? They said, we don't know. You ask him. So Walt asked me, what have you got there, Raleigh? And I said, I don't know why. I just think we, I said, I've been watching a lot of scary films and I think we, you know, we really should do scary. And Walt said at that time, people love to be scared. He said, we definitely want to put some scary stuff in there. So what happened was he, he went, he went home that day came back and I came back the next day. He was sitting at my desk at eight o'clock in the morning. And the first thing he said to me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I said, oh God, what? He said, I couldn't sleep last night. I didn't know what to do with all that stuff that you showed me yesterday, all that scary stuff. So he said, you know what we're gonna do? He says, we're gonna do a museum of the weird. He says, Rhoda, you can do the weirdest stuff you want because we're gonna put it in that museum and we'll say we've collected the weirdest things from all over the world. I said, oh, God, that's a great idea, Walt. So then Walt asked Dick Irvine bring, have him bring all the guys back in for another meeting, and Walt gave them a complete presentation on um, the Museum of the Weird. And, of course, after Walt left and, and said, I've got to go home and go to bed, because he'd been up all night, all the guys came to me and said, we knew you did something that was good. Where they told me the day before that what I did was something that Walt didn't like. So there were you, you, you watch these guys, they're like flags in the wind, you know. So, anyway, that's what my, uh, my only claim to fame was it, other than I built all the models and concepts that we showed Walt. In fact, we did full scale mock ups of ghosts. I, so, I worked on a lot of the, the actual physical mock ups and stuff that worked on. Oh, he was a delight. He was a cranky old guy, but he was a delight, and I loved him. And uh, and we got along great. He had a great 
frank sense of humor. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I loved about him was he did have a great sense of humor. And of course, I knew he was a goddamn genius because everything he came up with was absolutely right out of his head and really great, really great. And uh, I know the guys over at Maple didn't like him because they thought that that's what they should do was build this stuff, uh, come up with stuff, and said it was, it was jail. So anyway, it was it was a it was a wild time because when you came to work, you weren't sure what your day was going to be like or what you were going to do or if you were going to see Walt or not. So it was it was heaven, heaven. The whole thing was heaven. Yeah, it it definitely sounds like that. One of the topics I want to bring up, I've brought this up with those who worked with Waltz. It's never a pleasant topic, but I think it's an important one. Um, do you remember the day that Walt passed and the feeling in the studio or in the model shop that day? Well, when he passed, it was horrible. We all went out and got drunk. We just went out to a bar. Well, we all got together, everybody in the model shop. We went to a restaurant, had a big lunch, and started drinking, ended up drinking the rest of the afternoon and, and closed wet. Everything closed up. It was a very sad time. Uh, John Hinch came out and told me that Walt had passed. I was in the model shop. And I knew he was really sick because I had seen him a few, I guess about a week before, and he looked terrible. His eyes already sort of shrunk and pulled him back in his in his face. And I thought, that's strange. That's not good. He doesn't look good at all. What happened was they just, when they opened up and found out how bad the cancer was, and they just closed him up, and that was it. And I told him, I guess he told him was it his time was up or whatever, and uh, that was it. And everything became very sad for a long time. I don't think any of us ever really got over it. I know the company didn't, never got over it, because Walt was the, the spirit of the comp company, and, and he always gave us stuff to do that we'd never done before, and which was so special. And he always uh, you know, supported us with what we did. Yeah, and I know after that work was going to continue on the Florida project, which ended up becoming Walt Disney World. How, what, or what was it like to work on Disney World after Walt passed? Well, it was awkward. <clears throat> I think the thing that bothered me the most was uh, when I started watching the, the different people working on it was Dick Irvine had it was from, from 20th Century Fox. So he contacted a bunch of the architects from 20th Century Fox and put them on uh, World's Fair. And yeah. I'm sorry, Disney World. <laughs> um, and I, that disturbed me because it lost the, the style. In other words, uh, Disney designers had a, 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 that came out of the 30s, there was a certain charming style the little characters and, and everything. And all of a sudden I've seen architects design whimsical buildings. And I said, no, 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 this is not right. So I was very disturbed about everything there. And I just thought, this is stupid. And But they gave me the toad ride to do for Florida. So that kind of pumped me up a little bit. So I did the toad ride for Florida. And I ended up doing a bunch of stuff for Florida. I did the, the magic shop. And then eventually I did Small World. And uh, that was kind of an interesting time frame, but I didn't get along at all with Dick Irvine. I couldn't follow the way he thought. And so I just continued doing things the way I wanted to. And luckily I got to build the stuff the way I wanted to when I did it. <clears throat> I was very proud of Small World at the, at the, up there, at the world's, I mean, at uh, Florida, yeah, Florida. Yeah, because what I did there was I did something that we talked about doing after we finished Small World for 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 Disney. We always wanted a boat ride for to where you rode in the boat, but you weren't in a trough. You were going through in a little lake or little channels, so the whole ride was a ride in a boat. And so we we got, we pushed that through for Florida, which made me real happy. So that was kind of fun and neat. 
We had, you know, we all got together with everything, everything we did. We always had a good time with each other. That was the good news. So it was great. So, and I think a lot of us were always fighting for what we, what we were taught. And of course, management didn't necessarily go along with that. But anyway, it was kind of sad. The whole thing turned out to be very sad. Yeah, I, I know it was a, a very sad time for sure. And I know you ended up going on to do some other things outside of Disney at that point for a bit. What was part of your, I guess, um, or what was it that that brought you to to leave Disney and uh, to and what were some of the projects that you worked on beyond Disney? Well, I was offered to do a lot of other things, and the author, I mean, the authors were great. I know I was contacted by Ringling Brothers to design a theme park for Florida, a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey theme park, Circus World. So I designed Circus World. I quit and went to work for Ringling Brothers and designed Circus World, and I worked on it for a year. And the sad part about it is when they went to build it, they didn't have enough money to build it, so it sort of died its own its slow death. But what it did do, it did open up a, a showcase, which was a big building that looked like a tent, and uh, and we put all kinds of shows in that building. So I did do a lot of stuff for Ringling. I enjoyed working with Ringling Brothers. And then what happened, the bottom line was they never had the money to do it. And so that kind of ended that. And then the interesting thing about it was while I was in Florida working on that, Knott's Berry Farm, uh, Marion, that was the daughter of Knott's, was, wanted to do a dark ride at, at, in in, in uh, uh, Anaheim uh, about Knott's Berry Farm. And so they wanted me to come to work for them as soon as I came back. And they waited for me to come back. And when I came back, then they put me on the little berry tail ride. And so I designed the, the berry tails, a little dark ride. And uh, I was thrilled because I was actually able to design things in the berry tails that I wasn't able to design for Disney because they wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do. They always kept some sort of a, uh, I don't know, always make sure I stayed in a certain category or whatever. Because um, when I did the Berry Tales, I did everything that I thought you should do to put in a ride that they hadn't done before. And that was fun because I actually had, um, I'm trying to think here for a minute, uh, things I came up with. Oh, I know. The lighting, for one thing, and also the way it was painted internally. And so I got a chance to, to use, I learned so much with everything I had done that it was my first chance to do something completely on my own with total control over every aspect of it. And I put magic magic uh, in, in the uh, ride, and, I mean, real magic illusions in the ride, which no one had ever done before. And I, I worked out the color combination between black light and incandescent light that worked perfectly that nobody had done before. So I did a lot of things that had never been done before, but you just had, you know how to, you just had to know how to do it. And it was interesting because I know when we did Small World for the World's Fair, they used a, a lighting designer that was from 20th Century Fox. And what he did was he was from, he did that for films. So he lit small world up out there, uh, with, and it was overlit, and it, and it lost its charm. It had no charm, just with all these all the lights they had on it. And I realized that it, it should have been lit like a, uh, a show, like a Broadway show. So I learned lessons as I went along. So when I did the one for uh, the Berry Tales, I lit it like it was a show, like a Broadway show. And so I was thrilled about that. That was good. Can you give me a chance? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the last specific projects uh, project I'd love to talk about is Epcot because that was important to Waltz and you and a number of Waltz original Imagineers helped to, you know, came back to help and work on Epcot. Uh, what was it like to work on that park? Because I know it was very different from the others. 
Well, working on Edgar was was a delight because you got to work with people that educators. <clears throat> and there was one uh, one educator. I, I did. I ended up doing the Land Pavilion, which is still alive and well and running, by the way. And uh, but the one I worked, the first one I did was Life Health, and we had this great uh, health educator, and he said if it's a ton of fun and an ounce of imagination, uh, excuse me, a ton of fun and, a, and an ounce of information, you reach a teachable moment. And so doing that for the, uh, the the health ride was an absolute delight. And I had handpicked my team, and my team was just doing some marvelous, marvelous things. One of them, there was Scott Hennessy was one of them, and, and um, Stevie Kirk. And the interesting thing about it was after this was all over with, each one of those did a, designed a theme park from scratch and had it built. One of them designed a theme park for um, uh, China, one did, did one for, and one did one for Japan. So here these little guys were nothing more than model builders when I, I brought them on board. And then when they let, when they left the company, they had, they had designed theme parks from scratch themselves because they were so well-trained by everybody, so which, which was great. So anyway, we all continued on with ourselves. And it was, it was great, it was a marvelous time. And all the people I knew and worked with and loved, we all became family. We still are. Yeah, I, not so much a, before we, I have just a few more questions, but uh, I have to say, cause you brought up the land pavilion. It is still around, it's, actually my favorite pavilion at Epcot and it took me a long time to realize part of the reason it's my favorite is it's also my earliest memory is being in the land pavilion and it's something about it that has always brought me a lot of joy and it just bring that's the place one of the many places, but uh, I think the earliest happy place for me at Disney. So thank you for <laughs> for building that uh, pavilion. <laughs> thank you. Um, and you know, keep the book and remember, and always go back to the book because it's it's all in the book. Well, it, it was I had a team on that that was very special. Um, that I met along the way, and uh, uh, God, it's hard to pull the names out right now. Um, but there was one fellow that from Phoenix, I mean, from uh, excuse me, Arizona, that I worked with. Um, and he, uh, God, I'm sorry, my mind has gone so far ahead of me, I can't catch up. Uh, but it's, it's in the book. <laughs> in fact, I talk about he and his wife in the book. He was an educator that was so perfect, such marvelous man. And uh, he worked with me on, on um, he actually worked with me on the land pavilion as well. He's the one that came up with the idea of, of uh, growing tilapia in, in Epcot and then serving tilapia in the restaurant in Epcot. Wow. So that was one of the things. Carl Hodges was his name. That's the gentleman I was trying to think of. It takes time to finally come out. But Carl Hodges was the, the guy, and he was, he was the craziest guy I've ever met. You know, I I hadn't seen him for a while, and I went down to visit him, and he'd taken the roof off his house because he invented this chimney that was a uh, that was a made became a kind of a a chimney of cool air. That's another long thing to explain, and I can't do it now. <laughs> yeah, he worked for. Uh, Phoenix, I think the college or whatever, and uh, yeah, he was good. He built a rainforest in a building, and that's how we found out about him because he had built this building that had a real rainforest inside of it. So we went down to see this rainforest inside, and then we hired him to work on us with Epcot, and luckily he ended up in my pocket, and that was just great. So we became very close personal friends, very close. That's great. I have two questions because I know your time is valuable and that's it. Uh, second to last question, you've been talking or teasing your book, which we have to discuss. Uh, you wrote a book or, auto, or you, you have an autobiography that you wrote with Jeff Heimbuck called It's Kind of a Cute Story. 
what inspired you to produce an autobiography? I don't know. I've always been, always wanted to be an educator. I used to give slideshows at Disney about Disney to the employees. And so I always had this thing in the back of my head to always pass the information on because it was passed on to me. And so that was what I wanted everybody to hear what Walt was really like yeah. and, uh, and what it was like to work with him. So I was kind of a disciple of that gentleman. It was just, I still am. Definitely. That's, that's great. My last question for you, Raleigh, a lot of my listeners are young high school students or college students who are one day dreaming of and working towards uh, working at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. What advice would you offer to anyone who wants to become an Imagineer? Well, that's a little difficult one to answer because it's not the same. The time's changed and uh, everything else has changed. And so I think the most important thing is for them to always believe in what they do and fight for what they believe in and uh, just keep going and keep the imagination up there. Believe in your crazy ideas. That's the one I forgot because I always did believe in my crazy ideas and they always took me somewhere <laughs> for sure. Simple, simple little things. Yeah. All, all great advice. Absolutely. Um, but Raleigh, I sincerely appreciate your time and the lending all these stories, sharing all these stories. It's, it's been a real pleasure. I will be sure to promote your book and uh, I really thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, thank you. I appreciate you being patient with me. <laughs> and with that, we close out episode 90 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give, of course, a huge thank you to Raleigh for speaking with me about his incredible memories and times working at Walt Disney Imagineering, or then, of course, called Wet Enterprises and the Walt Disney Studios. If you haven't already, definitely pick up a copy of his book. It's kind of a cute story. It's a wonderful autobiography. I read through the majority of it prior to this interview and look forward to finishing the rest of it as soon as I can. It is filled with amazing photos and stories and so much detail, things you probably didn't know before, and so much more than what we had the chance to discuss in today's episode. I, of course, want to turn the conversation over to you and learn what your favorite Raleigh Crump creation is, whether it is something from one of the Disney animated movies or from Disneyland, the 1964 World's Fair, or Walt Disney World. I definitely want to hear your responses and you can reach out to me and share your answers in so many different ways and to be sure to follow us on social media where you can reach out to me. You can follow Imagineer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Imagineer News. And you should definitely join our Facebook group, The Imagination, also called The Imagineer Podcast, Disney Fan Community, to chat not just with me, but with other listeners in this community about this subject and all other Disney subjects. Always a great group of people, so be sure to join us over on Facebook. If you don't already subscribe to the show, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other podcast app. Hitting the subscribe or follow button ensures that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And of course, if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like to hear on the show, just reach out to me on social media or send me an email at imagineerpodcast at gmail.com. 
If you haven't done so already, definitely leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store. I read each and every review I get and often will share out some of those reviews to my Instagram or Facebook story. And I certainly appreciate those of you who have taken the time to leave us a review. It does so much to help this show out. But perhaps the best thing you could do to support the show is a very simple thing. Just go ahead and hit that share button. Whether you share out this episode of the show, another one of your favorite episodes of Imagineer Podcast, or the podcast as a whole, and of course you can engage with and share some of our social media content, or even just talk about it with your friends. But anything you do to spread the word of Imagineer Podcast helps our community, of course, to continue to grow, and I appreciate those of you who continue to support the show that way, and definitely appreciate those of you listening who are part of the Imagineer Society, which is a way that you can help to support the show financially and get perks and benefits in return, even starting at just $1 a month, which is only $12 a year. You get perks and benefits associated with your membership. Of course, the more you're able and willing to uh, contribute to the show, the more in return that you get, including early access to every podcast episode, uh, bonus podcast episodes just for Imagineer Society, access to a private Facebook group. We do virtual events together exclusive to Imagineer Society members and so much more. You can see all the perks and benefits currently available, which are always subject to change by going to patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. And Patreon, by the way, is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So that's patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. And of course, be sure to check out our partners of the show. First, look into the Kingdom Insider because Christy has so much incredible information to share. See, she's been working harder than ever, I feel like. She has been doing so much, uh, visiting Walt Disney World frequently to update all of us on what it's been like to visit Walt Disney World during these times. And she always has so much knowledge and uh, is a Disney fan at heart from uh, the very beginning, so I appreciate that aspect of her, uh, what she brings to the Kingdom Insider. You can follow the Kingdom Insider at thekingdominsider.com or at the Kingdom Insider on any social media channel. And the next time you're ready to book your next vacation to Walt Disney World, hopefully soon Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, or any other des Disney destination around the world, definitely look into our travel partner, Academy Travel. They have been planning vacations for over 25 years and are diamond earmarked, which is the highest level of distinction that Disney awards to travel agencies. In fact, they are the number one travel agency for booking Disney vacations. And especially at times like these where you might have a lot of questions about Wow, you know, how to even plan your trip to Walt Disney World. Things have changed so much in the last year. They can really help to eliminate the guesswork because they are hard at work planning Disney vacations right now and know what it takes to make the most of a Disney vacation, especially during times like these. And the best thing to those of you listening is that these services are all free to you. It's at no extra cost, so it is definitely worth taking advantage of. And you can request a free quote, no obligation, by clicking on one of the travel links in the show notes of this episode or very simply go to imagineerpodcast.com, click on the travel drop down and then select your destination to fill out that form. And again, we'll get a free quote back, no obligation about your next Disney vacation. Last but not least, as always, I want to encourage you to go after your hopes and dreams and goals, whatever they might be. Don't rest on your laurels. Make sure that you are going after those goals and make the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, or whenever you're listening back to this episode, the best time of your life. And remember, as always, that amazing quote from Horizons, if you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast.
My name is Maui. Natives call me the Mighty One. I tamed the playful sun and gave my people time. Now they set their clocks by mine, for I am Tropic Standard Time. <laughs> 